This morning's Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians 6, and that can be found on page 1146 of the Church Bible in front of you. So 1 Corinthians 6, and we pick it up in verse 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Thank you, Justin. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be truly pleasing to you on this difficult topic, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if there are controversial issues that will divide people both inside and outside the church, I'm sure this is one of them. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about homosexuality. Uh, It's the first time I've spoken about it, uh, if I can say here at St Matthew's uh, in terms of a weekend message. And I want to say a couple of introductory comments before we get into kind of the body of the message. And there's three things I think worth saying as I start from a personal point of view. Um, I'm giving this talk firstly as the chief or head Bible teacher here in the parish. And that is one of my key roles. And what I want to do as, if I can say, uh, the head Bible teacher is to help us understand clearly what the Bible has to say on this topic. As a church, we need to be clear about what the Bible does say and doesn't say and have a very clear conviction that what it says is true, it's good and it's right. Now, I also want to acknowledge in saying that, that there will be people from other churches who will disagree with what I say, some profoundly. And what differentiates us is really how we read the Bible. Um, It's a question of hermeneutics. Now, hermeneutic is not my third-removed Dutch uncle, hermeneutic. Uh, Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation, and it's a secular science, how you read material. And I come from a particular way of reading, which is uh, from within the evangelical wing of the church, where we believe, and this is what you see every week here at church, that the Bible is clear, uh, that there's a common message, if I can say, a story that hangs from Genesis through to uh, new creation in Revelation, that though you've got 66 different books with numerous human authors, it's been inspired by the Spirit of God. And so this is a book that we say is God's Word. And people who typically take what you might call a pro-gay approach um, have a very different view of Scripture. And I'll read you what one writer said. It's extremely revealing to note that almost almost every pro-gay group within the church shares one thing in common. They reject the Bible as being fully the Word of God. Likewise, the many pro-homosexual books that have come out almost all reject or even ridicule the church's historic stance on the inspiration and authority of Scripture. 
And so I want to say up front, in giving the talk today, I'm coming from a position where I think the Word of God is the Word of God, the Scriptures, and it does communicate truth to us clearly and authoritatively for us in terms of all matters of faith and conduct. And one thing I would say is lowering the bar on truth actually doesn't help people. It doesn't help people. We need to understand and have a clear conviction about what God's eternal word says on this particular topic. Secondly, I speak as a pastor. And it's interesting being the senior minister, you kind of wear a number of hats. Uh, Bible teaching is one, if I can say pastor is another. And as such, I don't just want to be clear, I must be compassionate. I know we'll have people in the congregations today who will be struggling with same-sex attraction. Some may be known to you. I suspect many may be struggling in silence. Some will be here today who've got brothers, sisters, sons, daughters or grandchildren who identify as being gay. And so for all of us, the issues are real and sensitive. And I would say a genuine compassion is needed on this topic. This message is for those who are here at church and struggling to know what to do with conflicted feelings in terms of their sexual orientation that resides along with their desire to try and understand where faith and God fits in. And I've been praying that my words will not be hurtful but rather helpful today and they're filled with grace and not condemnation of where people are at. And so we don't just need a conviction about the truth on this topic, we need a real compassion for people in terms of where they are. But thirdly, I speak as a member of this church. Uh, I am the senior minister, but I'm also a member of the church with all of you here. And I'm praying that this church will be a safe place for people who do struggle in this area of life to find hope, to find friendship and to find acceptance in their desire to honour Christ in and through the struggles that they may have as a person with same-sex attractions. And those three words that I began my journey six and a half years ago are as true today as they ever were. May this be a place filled with love and grace and truth. And we need all of those things. And if you sum it up, I want us to have a conviction about the truth, a compassion for people's struggles, and to be a community that is safe for people who are struggling to honour God in this area of their life. Now, why is this a difficult topic to speak on? It's funny, last week people thought last week's topic of sex was difficult. I thought, gee, that's the easy one out of this. The issue of sex being maintained for within marriage is what I taught last week. Sexual purity requires sex to be if I can say, enjoyed in the exclusive context of the marriage relationship. Now, that does sound completely out of date where our culture and society is. There's no doubt about that. And some may say even you're seeking to be controlling in doing that. But yet we are wanting to say that within marriage, sex is a good thing. Sex is to be enjoyed within the context of that exclusive marriage relationship. But It ratchets up, if I can say, the difficultness this topic because what we're saying is actually something quite different. Gay marriage or homosexual relationships actually are not on. The Bible's view that homosexuality uh, is a valid lifestyle choice is not one that I endorse. 
And this communicates to the outside world that the church is not just out of touch and completely, if I can say, historically quaint and irrelevant, but many would say completely unjust and unfair in the relationships of people in today's society. And you only have to witness uh, the debate going on about gay marriage, and in particular Tanya Plibersek, who's the deputy leader of the Federal Labor Party, in speaking to her colleagues to say that the gay marriage issue should not be a conscience vote, but a matter of principle that we endorse this to be Labor. And the reason she says that is because for her it's an issue of justice. And that's why there is so much emotion in this topic. Now the reading we had today is the same reading that we had last week. And I sometimes think I could preach on this passage or particular passages about six weeks running, but you'd probably get bored with me. But anyway, we're back here again today at 1 Corinthians 6. And we looked last week at the particular issue of sexuality and purity, but we're narrowing the focus today to say, actually, what does this passage say in particular to the issue of homosexuality? And there's a number of very important things it does have to say. And so I'm going to narrow my comments to this passage. I'm going to make a few wider exploratory thoughts because I don't want to steal David Peterson's thunder and also you'd probably like to go home before lunch, more importantly. And so David's going to come and unpack all of Scripture and how it fits together on Wednesday night, quarter to eight, and Thursday morning, 9.30 for 10 o'clock here. I would encourage you, do come along. But if you've got your Bibles, let's open up. And we are on page 1146. 1146. I'll read to us again. Don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Four points to make from the text in front of us today, those three verses. The first is... Uh, If I can say this gently, homosexual activity is wrong. Now there's two forms of homosexual behaviour here mentioned by Paul that are in the one phrase in the translations in front of you with the NIV 2011 translation. And the phrase you've got there in the text in front of you says men who have sex with men. There's actually two words that are in the original language there. Paul wrote in what's called Koine Greek. Uh, It was the common language of Greek, not the language of the academy. And the two words are this, malakos and asenakoites. Now, I'm not a, if I can say, Greek scholar, though I have studied Greek. And let me just give you a bit of background to those two words. Malakos uh, is a word meaning uh, pertaining to be soft. And it's where you get the sense of soft effeminate from. And the word was used to describe the passive male partner in homosexual relationships. The other word, asenokoites, we believe was invented by Paul himself. It doesn't appear in any of the ancient Greek literature that predates the New Testament. And so one of the things they do when they look at words in the Bible is they look, how is it used outside of the Bible? Uh, It's not used outside of the Bible before this point. And there's two words there that are brought together that Paul, in a sense, creates a word with, and it's male sleepers. Asenokoites. And so it appears to be invented by Paul. 
And it literally means men sleepers and it's used by Paul to describe a male partner in homosexual relationship and homosexual intercourse who takes on the active or dominant role in homosexual relationships. And so what he's saying is the passive role with the man, the active role, uh, both are wrong. And to give you some background on that, in the Roman world, homosexual relationships were invariably exploitative relationships between men of quite contrasting social statues. It was not uncommon for married men to, if I can say, have sex with their wives. They then go and have sex with their slaves, female, and they might have sex down at the temple with female prostitutes down there. But they'd also engage in homosexual relationships with male prostitutes or slave boys or other young men of lower classes who had little freedom to refuse. They were the malakos, the soft ones, the passive ones. And Romans didn't think in terms of sexual orientation or identities, but rather that proper masculinity was to be expressed in terms of taking the dominant or active role in the sex act. And so the desire to play the passive role was considered shameful. It was even expected that people of stature would penetrate people of lesser status, be they men or women. That's the Roman culture. It was kind of a free-for-all. And what's worth noting is that Paul opposed homosexual acts not on the basis of the conventional culture of the day. He's not just reacting culturally. And you see this at uh, the verses that speak later on in the passage in verses 14 to 17 because he quotes there the marriage, if I can say, description and blueprint from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And Paul sees that homosexuality is wrong because it overturns the creation mandate of sex as being only for use within a marriage between a man and a woman. He's not saying this is just culturally not what you should do. He's saying actually this is not the way we're created. Now, David Peterson's going to come and unpack all of that Wednesday and Thursday. But if you're thinking that these two texts are just a one-off and why in particular is it male homosexuality that's referred to, let me give you a few more thoughts. It isn't just one text in the New Testament. There's actually three different occasions that Paul refers to it and there's other material which David will go through from other parts of Scripture from the Old Testament. The two other places it's referred to are in Romans chapter 1 and also in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 1. Paul describes here a very big picture of how sin and rebellion against God entered the world. It's kind of a historic portrayal of the problems we have with sin and rebellion against God. And you get to verse 24 and it says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural, natural relations with men and were abandoned, were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And that's Romans chapter 1, verse 24. It's page sorry 1127 there in the New Testament, if you want to have a look. Now, the thing to note is this. Um, what you may not know is references to female homosexuality or lesbianism 
to use the current description, were actually very infrequent in the ancient world and in ancient literature and were typically negative when you read ancient literature. The woman's role was seen to be that of a childbearer and little more. I'm not agreeing with this, I'm just saying that's what it was seen as. And lesbian sex was thus viewed as being unnatural and wrong. So what's telling is, as Paul condemns here homosexual activity and sex in the letter to the Romans, is that he mentions lesbian sex first. Because you see, the readers typically would have agreed with that. That's wrong. And then Paul says, actually, and it's wrong for the men as well. That would have raised some eyebrows. You go to 1 Timothy, verse 9 and 10. Chapter 1, that's page 1192. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for the murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. In other words, what you see is that there's a consistent theme running through the New Testament that is consistent with the Old Testament, that homosexual activity is wrong. But in saying this, I need to say what I'm not saying. Neither Paul, nor the New Testament, nor the Bible condemns people for their struggles or the temptations that they face. And there's no doubt we face many struggles and many temptations in our Christian walk. In other words, they're not condemned for what you might call disordered desires. The reality of the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve both rebelled against God is that every subsequent human being that has been born into existence is born with sin. And one way to describe our sin is that we have disordered desires. And I put it this way because, you see, all of us will desire things that are wrong. All of us. There's not one person here in this room who has not got a disordered desire. All of us will lust after certain things that are not good for us. And it can be in the realm of relationships, it can be in the realm of finances, it can be in the world of property acquisition, it can be in the world of material goods, uh, it can be in the world of food, and it also is in the realm of sexual desire. And so we shouldn't be surprised because we can rightly say, yes, it's wrong to be greedy. That's a very obvious one that is rampant in the Western world, that we have a disordered desire for material wealth. And we kind of know it's wrong, don't we? And so we shouldn't be surprised that there's disordered sexual desires that are wrong and that are harmful. And sexual immorality is just one of them. And you see, we are not condemned for the fact that we have desires. It's the acting out of them that actually brings the condemnation. God doesn't condemn people for same-sex attraction and same-sex desire in the same way God doesn't condemn people for disordered desires with money or property or food or whatever. We're all broken sinners. That's one of the realities of the story of the gospel. I know that isn't accepted by many people because many people don't want to see themselves as being sinful, but it is the reality for all of us. 
And we are all here as strugglers. And homosexual activity to act upon that desire is wrong in the same way it's wrong to steal. And so what I want to say is homosexual activity is wrong, clearly wrong. And people who struggle with this are called by God to abstain from it in the same way people are to abstain from sex outside of marriage. The call of God for someone struggling in this area is to live a celibate life. Point two, homosexual sin is no worse than the sin of greed or theft or any other slander uh, sin, to name a few. And I think it's instructive to note that whenever homosexuality is mentioned here in the New Testament, it's not highlighted as one sin far worse than a whole bunch of other sins. In other words, elevated in status. It's mentioned in a list of context of numerous sins. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor the homosexuals, nor the thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the slanderers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And it's the same thing in Romans, it's the same thing in 1 Timothy. And I say that because there's no doubt that due to the history of treatment of homosexuals in the Western world, in particular by both the church and the state, where up until 1974 it was illegal and you could be thrown in jail that there's been a very poor treatment of people who've struggled in this area over and against other people who struggle with sin but are not thrown in jail. I haven't seen many greedy people thrown in jail just for being greedy. Though it is a rampant sin in the West. And historically, people who have struggled with same-sex attraction have been called all manner of names to target them as being peculiar people. When I grew up, it was very common that they were called poofters or queer. And that name says it all. There's something very unusual with you. It's interesting because, you see, we don't have terms of derision for people who are greedy or swindlers or alcoholics. We just name the sin for what it is. And there's a rightness about saying, you are greedy, we are greedy. You've been swindling someone. But we don't add an emotionally charged label to it to highlight that this person is somehow weirder or queerer than everyone else. The impact of this has been that people who struggle with this sin in their life within the Christian church have felt unable to talk about it at all, which is incredibly destructive. They have suffered in silence. They're caught in a wrestle between what they have sexually desired and what they believe and know is wrong under God. And I want to read to you what one former Christian pastor who is now a counsellor wrote about his journey with same-sex attraction from growing up within the church. My thoughts would go back, this is Joe Dallas, this is his words, my thoughts would go back to homosexual encounters that seemed a hundred years in the past. So I concluded there was something, something fundamentally wrong with me. So wrong, in fact, it made me one of the worst most perverted Christians in the church. I had an unspeakable secret. I was a Christian who harboured very unchristian sexual fantasies and attractions. 
And he says, and I thought I was the only one. He said in other parts of his book that he's written, he used to hear people give testimonies in church about how God had helped them overcome the struggles they had. Greed, lying, all sorts of things. Substance abuse, alcohol. He said, I never ever heard someone say they were struggling with issues of sexual addictions and sexual attractions that were wrong. And so it's worth saying homosexual sin is a sin, but it's no worse than the other sins that the Bible lists. Thirdly, our identity is to be found in our relationship with God and not our sexual orientation. I was thinking, what would I say to people who may be here today and who are struggling? And you see, this passage is very helpful because it highlights the issues that there's a whole bunch of things that we can get caught up with, with disordered desires. But Paul says in verse 11 some very profoundly helpful words not just for those who struggle with same-sex attraction, but those who struggle with disordered desires, which is all of us. He says, that's what some of you were. It's what some of you were. But listen to what's happened to you since you became a Christian. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You see, one of the deeper issues that relates to this topic of homosexuality is the question of identity. Who am I? And you see, that's the question you start to wrestle with when your sexual orientation is so out of step with the majority and when no one talks about this as an issue. It has profound implications for us depending on how we answer this question, who I am. And in this area of homosexuality, what the gay movement has done is that it's sought to define people's core identities by their sexual orientation. And so one of the catch cries of the gay movement that's etched in my memory as I grew up is people saying, I'm gay and I'm okay. And what they're saying is actually, I'm okay to define my identity by my sexual orientation. I'm gay. It's interesting, they're doing that in a positive way, in the same way um, the Alcoholic Anonymous movement encourages people to define themselves by their struggle as well. I'm an alcoholic. It's why we have the phrase, to come out. Because it's a coming out to announce an identity. This is actually really who I am. Now the gospel and the scriptures say something profoundly different and powerful in response. In creation, the Bible says, our identity is sexual in the sense that we're males and females and there's no doubt our sexuality is a core part of our identity. We are male, we are female. But our significance in terms of our identity does not come primarily from our maleness or our femaleness, in other words, our sexuality, rather it is that as male and as female people, we reflect God's glory as men and women who are made in the image of God. Our identity in creation is image bearers. And that's what scripture proclaims to be 
the primary identity for us. It's why we believe in the sanctity of human life. As you reflect on the discussion about the Bali Nine and the executions, it affects so many ethical and moral debates because we believe in the sanctity of life. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. We reflect his image. Now that image has been broken. It is cracked by the fall of humanity. But in salvation it's restored in Christ and our identity is now found in him. Regardless of our sexual orientation or our disordered desires, no matter how inordinate they may be in whatever area of life they may be, we are saved by grace And as people, our identity is now but defined by what Christ has done for us. And see, that's what Paul is saying. You were that kind of person. And you could have defined yourself as being an adulterer. You could have defined yourself as being greedy or being immoral or being homosexual. But this is how you define yourself now. This is who you are. You are someone who's washed. You are someone who is sanctified, which means you've been set apart by God. You are loved deeply by him. You are someone who is justified. You are not guilty. And he says, it was in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In other words, you've actually experienced this reality in your life. The Spirit of God has washed you clean. You know that. You know the reality in your life of being declared not innocent, of being his special child. You are loved. I think it's profoundly important to grapple with this. In asking people who struggle with same-sex attraction to remain faithful to God by staying sexually celibate, I'm not asking them to change who they are. Because that is one of the complaints. Because see, who you are is a child of God. All of us. Rather, I'm telling them, define yourself by what Christ has done for you and who you are in his sight. Who you are is a Christian who is loved. Who you are is a child of God, male and female, deeply loved. In his sight, you are pure and spotless. I was very profoundly impacted by a guy called Wesley Hill. And if you come on Wednesday night, you're going to hear some of his story. I emailed the congregation out a link to talks that he's given. If you didn't get that, please email me. I'll send them to you. Wesley grew up in a very safe, secure, loving Christian family. There was no sense of disconnection with his father. But from early ages, he noticed disordered desires in his sexuality and realised in his teenage years he was gay. Wesley's now a lecturer in theology. He's got a PhD in New Testament thinking with the Apostle Paul. And he says, I'm a gay Christian. But he says, let me take an hour to unpack what that means. He said, the noun is Christian, the adjective is gay. In other words, I'm a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. I don't think that my struggles will ever cease. There are some people who a great work of God takes place and their sexual orientation changes. Wesley said, don't make promises about that because, you see, my story and so many people's stories is we've been prayed for, we've confessed our sins, but we still have this disordered desire. 
And he said, my story in life will be one where I have this struggle for my life as a Christian. I struggle with gay thoughts. But my commitment is that I'll remain celibate. And I am content because my life is defined, my identity is found in Jesus Christ. Last point and closing thought. Sexual purity requires a redeemed community context. Sexual sin is powerful because it does relate to parts of us that are so deep. And there's no doubt our sexuality is a very core component of who we are. And so sexual sin has great power to bring shame and condemnation into people's lives. And so in this critical component that really does engage with who we are and what we're on about, when people are struggling with sexual sin and disordered desires, they typically don't and won't speak about it to others for fear of shame and possible condemnation, particularly in the church. But here's the problem. When you walk alone, you typically fall. When you walk alone, you typically fall. Godliness is a community activity. I don't know if you thought about it that way. You see, we actually need each other to walk the Christian life together. And in this area in particular. Because Christians who struggle with disordered desires and have a sexual orientation towards people of the same sex, if they are to honour Christ, it means that they will be celibate, which means they will lead a life of singleness. How is that possible? Wesley, one of the talks he gives is on spiritual friendships. He said, what we most need as people who struggle with this is spiritual friendships of depth with people who will walk with us so that there is a real sense of depth of companionship and relationship over time that enables us to honour God with our bodies. And you see, it's interesting, I've got the verses on the screen from verses 18 to 20. Uh, The command is given twice. Flee and honour. And do you know what? It's given in the plural. You see, the command is to the church. We must flee immorality. We must honour God with our bodies. The actual bodies, the, the language there is singular. In other words, all of us need to take responsibility. But as a community, we are called to action. And what it's going to mean in this particular area is that we must walk alongside people with grace and truth and love to help people, not condemnation and shame. And so if you're here this morning and you are someone who is struggling in this area and you want to know God, you know God. I'm glad you're here. Because my prayer has been that we will be a community that is known and filled with love and grace and truth. And that you will find acceptance in your desire to honour God and in your struggles and not condemnation and shame. And that we together, in the area of sexuality, seek to honour God, whatever that may be, in terms of married, single heterosexual, single homosexual,
that Christ will be our light and our hope. And Wesley wrote a book and he said, if you want to define this life, it's called washed and waiting. And you see, that's what the call is for people who struggle in this area. To know that you've been washed clean in the Lord Jesus Christ and that you are to live a life of celibacy as you wait for his return and the redemption of your bodies. And may we be a community together that enables that to take place. Let me pray. Dear Lord, for all of us here today, I pray we would have a conviction about the truth of your word in this area and the call to sexual faithfulness and purity and celibacy where that's required. I pray there would be a deep sense of compassion to help people who struggle. And Lord, there would be rich community that enables brothers and sisters to walk this road together with deep and abiding spiritual friendships. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.